Well, this, this morning I brought a few pictures with me. One of them you've seen before, but uh, um, these are about a little over four years old. This is a picture of, you know, Eli's been in our family for a little over four years now, and he's been uh, an amazing addition to our family, and, uh, and we are excited and, and still uh, just thank the Lord every day that he is a part of our family. That is the orphanage that Eli lived in. Um, you can see it's a picture that I took from the street the day we went back to visit uh, his orphanage. Uh, the next picture, um, that's Eli, uh, little Eli. <laughs> he, he's grown quite a bit since then, but that's him showing us the bed that he slept in in his orphanage. He showed us around. Um, that is actually where they would bathe all of the kids. I mean, they basically would line them up, put them in the sink, bathe them, and it was kind of like... Uh, just, I won't say assembly line, but it's kind of the other way around, right? They had to get them uh, in the bath and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, but that's there. And this is the picture that you've seen. That's the bench uh, that they found him on uh, when he was adopted. And so, a uh, little curveball. Can y'all go back to the first picture? That building, you know, when we walked around, we saw kids of all ages. Uh, some had... Um, physical issues, some uh, were Eli's age, some were younger, some were teenagers. And as we walked around and we talked with our guide about some of these kids and just, you know, even how, um, you know, the, the orphanage, how um, they found Eli, um, it, it occurred to me that that is where the poor in spirit live. That's where the poor live, not necessarily financially, although that's true. I mean, these kids have nothing. The orphanages survive um, on what the government gives them and, and organizations like Lifeline, the adoption organization we used. Um, but they have, you know, they are without family, um, parents, grandparents, siblings, inheritance. I mean, the, the kids in that building, that's the category that they fall into. And so they are very much a physical representation of what Jesus is talking about in a spiritual sense in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. Um, and so it, 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 when you see that and when you think about what Jesus is talking about and how that's a physical representation of spiritually what Jesus is talking about, how can we say they are blessed? I mean, what, what, what is Jesus saying there? I mean, how, how could they possibly be blessed? Well, they are. Um, and we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about this in the beginning of a new series that we're going to be in over the rest of the summer uh, called To Be or Not To Be. It is on the Beatitudes. We're going to walk through the Beatitudes and look at each of them and, and how Jesus uses those Beatitudes to show us what we as Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ, how we should live. They explain for us what we are to do and what we are to be as believers. When you look at the, the context, the scriptural context of the Beatitudes, Jesus is, has been kind of zigzagging around the countryside. He's been teaching. He's been healing. Um, he's, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching crowds. Um, and, and the crowds are building. They're getting larger and larger. And as he's doing this, in the midst of all of this, we have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. 
Uh, and that's at the very beginning of that, we have the Beatitudes. And so when we look at these, he's, Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, all of those who are not just the 12, but his disciples, those who are his students. And he's, he's showing them uh, what they are to, to be, what it's like, to, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, what it really looks like to be someone who follows the Lord, Jesus Christ. And with these, he is describing, the Beatitudes describe the inner qualities of a true disciple. He's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking, those of us who are followers of Christ, we are students of his. He's showing them, he's showing us what the the qualities of a true disciple of Christ is. And they answer two very important questions for us as followers. Um, questions that we probably all asked at one point or another. First, what does Jesus want from me? And second, what does Jesus want for me? And what does he expect from me? And what, is, what does he want for me? The, the Beatitudes answer those questions. And so let's just read through Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And we'll read through all of the Beatitudes today, and we're going to zero in on on the first, in verse 3. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is, is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can divide, the, you see this a, a lot in, in, uh, in Scripture, uh, and Jesus' teaching in the Ten Commandments, you can divide into two categories the Beatitudes. Uh, it's very similar to, to the Ten Commandments. You can divide them into th- uh, those that describe my relationship to God and those that describe my relationship to other people. The first four deal uh, with my relationship to God, and the, the final ones deal with my relationship to other people. And so, as we think about the Beatitudes, we're thinking about living out the qualities, the principles of being a disciple and how that relates to God and how that relates to other individuals. A person who lives for the Lord, who follows this teaching, is going to be someone who is poor in spirit. It's going to be somebody who mourns over their sins, who is gentle, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who is merciful, who is pure in heart, a peacemaker, and someone who's persecuted, who's willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And we can think, when you think of the Beatitudes, when we go through this series, we need to think of them as a staircase, all right? Each one builds, it leads to the next, builds on the other, and they are dependent upon each other. They, they build on each other. They all work together. And so when we're walking through this progression, we need to think of it that way. We need to think of it as someone who is poor in spirit, um, is compelled to mourn over their sins. Somebody who is meek will hunger for righteousness, 
who is pure in heart, they are going to be merciful. That's a natural result of that. They, they, as, as one of mercy, they strive to attain peace with others and lead others to achieve peace with God or to experience peace with God. And then they're going to end up being hassled, persecuted for that in some way, shape, form, or fashion. They all work together. And so when Jesus is teaching these, it's not a test where if you get six out of ten right, you pass. It's all or nothing. And the, the goal is that we display all of these in our lives. That, that all of the Beatitudes describe who we are from beginning to end. And we're going to see through this how the Beatitudes fit into the broader scope of Jesus' teaching. And also his life and ministry. His life, death, his burial, his resurrection. All of those things. What Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, is a radical change of heart, a complete turnaround for those who are lost. When they come to Christ, they begin by recognizing their need for Christ. They begin by recognizing their sin. It's not a casual shift of attitude. It is a complete and t- total demol- demolition of my old self and a replacement of that old self with the new self that Jesus gives us, a new creation. These aren't just cliches that we follow. Jesus is the speaker. He is the embodiment of all of the Beatitudes. And so they become an invitation from him to us to follow him with our lives, to become his disciples, to become his students, to become who he is to be molded and shaped into who he is. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. He's describing himself and who he is, not only as human, but God. And he's saying, if you want to be a follower of mine, this is who you will become. This is what I'll make you if you will submit to me. This is what oneness with me, oneness with God the Father looks like. He's recommending a way of life, a lifestyle that all of us, we all should assume that we should become. Habits that we should practice so much that they just become second nature. They're just who we are. It's a natural overflow of who we are and who Jesus is as he lives in and through us. So where do we begin? Well, we begin at the beginning. We start with the first, the first beatitude. And we learn from this that we are to seek kingdom wealth. Not earthly wealth, but kingdom wealth. And, the, and so, number one, in order to do that, in order to be wealthy in terms of spiritual standards, we seek God's blessing. Seek God's blessing. And you think about that. We think seek God's blessing, we think maybe benefits for us, which it does include. We might think material blessing. We might think, you know, um, like a father blesses his child, and, and certainly that's part of it. But, you know, when you, when you couple that with poor in spirit, as we'll see in a minute, um, it kind of makes you wonder what, what blessed really means. You know, in the, the first part of that, verse 3, blessed, blessed. What, is, what does it mean to be blessed? Uh, it's not happiness for one thing. We kind of mistake it, I think, sometimes for happiness. And we, we tend to judge our lives by whether or not we're happy, right? Or, you know, in terms of, of, of being content or, you know, or we, we, we think happiness in terms of fun, okay? You know, we've, are my kids happy? That equals, are they having fun? Well, not always. Is my marriage a happy marriage? 
We equal that with, is my marriage fun? Well, I mean, yes, but not all the time. I mean, you, can't, you can't judge your life by whether or not it feels good or it's fun, but that's ten, that tends to be what we do. We judge our happiness, our contentment, by how we feel. Happiness is not something that we feel. Jesus isn't talking about what we feel like as Christians. He's talking about what God thinks of them, and then as a result, what God thinks of us is what we are. And so he's saying you're blessed. God considers you blessed. Happiness is also something I pursue, isn't it? You know, happiness is, is a lot up to me. You know, how I feel, how I react to certain things is, is, is dependent upon me. But blessed is something that I am. It's something that God decides that I am. It's how he views me. It's different than the mindset with Jesus with the Beatitudes. You know, it's not something that we can achieve. It's something that we are, we receive as a gift. And so it's different than the mindset of, of today's culture. I found this a while back. It's the modern-day Beatitudes. This is what we would probably come up with, or at least in our culture, if, if we were to develop the Beatitudes ourselves. Uh, Blessed are the strong, for they shall rule the earth. You know, conquering, right? The strong survive. Blessed are the mighty, for they shall rise to power. Blessed are the rich, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the influential, for they shall be favored. Blessed are the popular, for they shall be loved. Blessed are the gifted, for they shall be followed. And blessed are the beautiful, for they shall be admired. But God says different. He, you know, you've heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. No. No, God helps those who can't help themselves. And God helps those who attempt to help others. But nowhere in Scripture, and certainly not in the Beatitudes, do you hear God helps those who can help themselves. Blessedness, here's what it means to be blessed. Blessedness really means the state of being blessed with God's divine favor. That's what that means. You know, Frederick Bruner said, God helps those who cannot help themselves. He also helps those who try to help others, but nowhere does he help those. In the Beatitudes, does it say he helps those who can help themselves? No, blessedness is talking about receiving divine favor from God. It is, it is nothing I earn. It's nothing I achieve on my own. It's God's divine favor. In the context of the Beatitudes here, we are talking about salvation. So God's divine favor on those that he saved, those that belong to him, the gospel, salvation, it's access to God. It's how we access who he is. It's, it's God's favor. It's his presence. You know, we're saved. Now we have access to God. We have his favor. We can live in his presence. So blessedness means divine favor. It also means being near God. Access to God means I can be close to God now. It's, it's the ability, the privilege of being near God, being in sync with him, in his word, committed to following Jesus' way. He's saying, this is who I am. Uh, this is what I want you to be, and I'm giving you the ability to become that, to follow me. And these, these results to those on the outside may not seem blessed, but to the one who's a child of God, it is it is very much blessed. It is in the presence of God, having his favor. So it's favor. It's being near God. It's also what I call divine surprise. 
divine because it's of God, surprised because it's God doing things we wouldn't expect in ways we could never imagine. I mean, it's God becoming a man. It's God in diapers, being born in a manger. It's God using spit to, to heal a blind person. I mean, it's him, him taking a coin from a fish's mouth to pay taxes. It's him, him coming back from the dead disguised as a gardener. I mean, it's things we never would imagine, right? Things, doing things we would never imagine in ways we could never come up with on our own. It's, it's God taking the form of man. It's, it's him napping in the middle of a storm and calming the storm in the seas with just his voice. And not only be still, but literal translation, be quiet and stay quiet because he's God. I mean, it, it's, it's him, the divinity of God in man, doing things that we would never imagine. And then also in our lives, bringing things about in ways we could never imagine. It's divine surprise. It's the good news of the gospel. It's salvation that's available to a sinner like me. I mean, who, who could ever imagine that God would do what he did to make it possible for us to be saved? None of us could have ever thought that up on our own. And, and that's proven by the fact that the people, that, the very people that were waiting on him, many of them didn't receive him. They rejected him because they didn't expect it to be the way that it was. The blessings that God promises are both now and they are in the future. Um, we enjoy the first fruits now, and then we also have the blessing of looking towards future with confidence and knowing that God will provide one way or the other. And it may be in a way we never expect, but he will take care of us. We're saved immediately. We trust in Christ, but we are a process in the process of being sanctified, not to be completed until we're in heaven. So to attain kingdom wealth... We seek God's blessing. Then we strive for poverty. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, a vow of poverty. If God leads you to do that, that's fine. But that's not the type of poverty we're talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And in its simplest form, what that means is this. It means humility before God. Total humility before God. And we'll talk about what that, how that, that's played out. But, you know, Jesus knew what it meant to be poor. I mean, for starters, can you imagine any greater poverty than God taking the form of man and giving up what he did? Albeit temporarily, he still he gave up a lot to become man. And so he knows what poverty is all about. He's experienced it. And, and not only did he take the form of a man, he was a carpenter from Nazareth, which was not a good thing in that day. Right? I mean, it wasn't, he was not viewed popularly. And he, was, he was poor, didn't have a home, didn't have a place to lay his head. Um, but he's, he's not talking necessarily about material poverty. The overwhelming majority, though, of the people that heard him were poor. They were taxed way beyond their means by the Romans. I mean, they were, the economy was not great for them. The demographics of people living off the land as he went from place to place, I mean, they were poor. They were literally poor. So it was an easy connection for them to make. The poor were everywhere, and they were the ones that were drawn to Jesus. But the word poor here implies that they weren't just physically poor, but that they were beaten down, they were humiliated. They had a sense of hopelessness. It wasn't just, yes, it was physical. That led them to this feeling in a lot of ways, but they didn't have hope, and they didn't know you know, where their next meal was going to come from. They didn't know what tomorrow held, and they had been humiliated 
by the Romans, many of them. So the miserable, the oppressed, the humiliated, they're blessed. You think about it. None of them felt blessed. And so, so put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Jesus is teaching. He says, all you who are miserable, you're poor, you're humiliated, you're taxed beyond your means, you guys are blessed. And imagine their reaction to that. It's not going to be a, 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 you know, there's going to be a lot of strange looks, you know, uh, coming back toward him. But he's saying they're blessed. And they are blessed because to the people that had no hope, who were miserable, who were poor, who knew they couldn't make it on their own, Jesus' message was one, it was a breath of fresh air. Because the step from, I know I can't do it on my own, to Jesus, I need you, is a short step. Because it didn't take much to convince them that they needed something other than than themselves. They knew they were in need. No one had to tell them they were in need. They knew it. So it's more than just material poverty. Poor in spirit means recognizing my, it's humility, but it's recognizing my true condition before God. That's what poor in spirit means. It means I recognize my condition. It's the exact opposite of being rich in pride. Another way to say it is that you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God. That's why Godspeed translated this, blessed are they who feel their spiritual need. Total and complete humility before God. They knew they needed something other than their own abilities and anything anybody could do for them in order to survive. And spiritually speaking, they knew they had a need. But unfortunately, a lot of people just can't get there. I mean, you think about the story of the rich young ruler. You look at him. He's an example of somebody who just couldn't quite get it. He couldn't quite get there. Matthew 19, 16. Just then someone came up to him and asked him, asked Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? What's he asking there? You know, works, yeah, what what do I need to do? How's my account balanced? Have I done enough? You know, he's a rich guy, he's thinking investment. And he's thinking, have I invested? How's my return on my investment? Have I put enough in to where I'm getting enough out for eternal life? Jesus says this, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one way, or there's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about all of the commandments. This day, between the commandments of the law, the Levitical law, and all those that have been added to it, there were 613 commandments, 365 negative, as many as days in the week, I mean in the year, and 248 positive. And so to any normal person, when they would have heard, a Jew in that day would have heard, you've got to keep all the commandments, they would have been like, well, I'm, I'm sunk. There's no way you can keep all those. But not this guy. This is, his response is, which commandments? Well, Jesus just said, keep the commandments. So he says, which ones? Well, Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, anybody that is even remotely humble will, would, would say then, I haven't done that perfectly, but not this guy. You can see him getting more and more sure of himself. Verse 20, I've kept all these, he said. What do I like now? What do I still lack? I've done all of it. I've been doing it my whole life. I've been a good boy. But Jesus knows different. He gets right to the point. Verse 21, if you want to be perfect 
Jesus said, go, he knows his heart, go and sell your belongings, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, the command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Did, was he grieving because he was rich? No, he, he loved his stuff more than he wanted Christ, more than he wanted salvation. And with that statement, the rich young ruler is completely distraught and the disciples are completely confused. And that's why in 25 they say, who can be saved then? None of us can do that. None of us can keep all the commandments. You know, who can be saved? And then one of the verses we quote a lot, but man, powerful. Jesus looked at them and said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You know, when you look at it from that perspective, none of us is good enough. He didn't say improbable. He said impossible. It's impossible from human standards. You can't do it on your own. If you're lost, you don't need a resume. You need a redeemer. That's what you need. You can't earn it. I can't earn it. You need somebody, God himself, to provide it for you. And that's the point here. You know, it's not through rituals, it's not through doing the right thing, it's not through coming to church, although that's important, it's not through knowing the Bible, you can't, I can't do enough, it's only by Christ, it's through grace which God provides, that's it. And here's the problem for the rich man, it wasn't money that hindered him, his biggest problem was self-sufficiency, he felt like he could do it on his own, that he had control, that he could take care of it. But the first step to salvation is recognizing my total humility before God. Then I recognize my dependence on God. So poor in spirit equals dependence on God. Matthew adds poor in spirit where Luke leaves that out. And in the Old Testament, that meant uh, humble, dependent upon God. It was someone who was in a tough fix, who knows he can't save himself. So their understanding, when you talked about being poor in spirit, it was somebody that they knew. They knew they couldn't save themselves. They knew they were on their own. It was hopeless. And so that person would do the only thing that that person could. They would turn to God and beg for mercy. That was their only hope was that God might show mercy on them. So, so when he says poor in spirit, that's the picture. It's somebody who knows they have nothing on their own and no way out on their own, so they beg God for mercy, fully aware that they need his help. And that's our before picture without Christ. Completely, totally lost, in sin, no hope, no way out. Our only hope is to beg for mercy. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. There's a story when, when John F. Kennedy was running for Senate. He came from a wealthy family, as everybody knows. And he was you know, speaking somewhere, and somebody who was extremely poor asked him this question. He said, do you know what it's like to not be able to pay your bills? To wonder how you'll get food on the table? To struggle just to make ends meet? Do you know what it's like to be poor? And to his credit, Kennedy honestly answered, he said, no, I don't. I don't know what that's like to be poor. Well, the guy said, you're not missing anything. <laughs> that was the guy's response. That guy knew what it was like. But, you know, to the wealthy, and guess what? To all of us who have what we need from day to day, to really any of us who are leaving here today not wondering where we're going to get our lunch from, to all of us, and certainly to the extreme wealthy in society, it's what Jesus is saying is that we're at a disadvantage 
And the reason we're at a disadvantage is because it's easy to think that we can manage our own worlds. It's easy to think that as long as we've got enough money in the bank that we, we can pay our bills, we can take care of it. Recognizing our dependence on God is just a little harder. It's not, I mean, it's impossible with human standards, but not for God. But we have to be humbled. The reality is, God is all we really have at the end of the day. And until we recognize that, we are never going to truly experience the blessing of God. Jim Forrest said, being poor in spirit means letting go of the myth that I, the more I possess, the happier I'll be. It's, that's not what it's about. The poor in spirit, whether they realize it or not, whether they're physically poor or not, um, those who realize they are poor in spirit are the ones who don't try for even one second to justify themselves like the rich young ruler did. They don't assert their rights. They don't play the martyr with their poverty. They're humble. They just cry out to God and beg for mercy because that's, they know that's all they can do. And that's the beauty of salvation. God doesn't save us because of what we've done. He saves us because of what he did on the cross. It's his act of grace and his mercy that make it possible. God does for us what we, could, what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do since it was limited by flesh, God did. He condemned sin in, in the flesh by sending his own son in the flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. And that's the message of the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. John Calvin said he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. And this is where we find the blessing. Because it's only when we fully embrace our spiritual poverty, our dependence on God, humility before God, it's only then that we can secure God's reward. And that's number three. We receive the reward. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why are you blessed? Because you now have the kingdom of heaven. You're a part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven isn't given to those who think they can do it on their own. It's given to the poor in spirit, only to those who are poor. Salvation has to be received with dependence and humility, faith like a child, total and complete dependence upon God. You know, going back to the orphanage, you know, those children were dependent upon their caregivers, just like all of our kids are, right? You know, and they, 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 without saying it, they knew that. And, and so all of us, as children, we know we depend on others. We depend on our parents. We depend on adults. When we get older, it's harder to recognize that. But the poor in spirit are those who recognize their dependence. C.H. Spurgeon said the way to rise in the kingdom of God is to sink to ourselves. You know, it's not me. It's not anything that I can do. But what exactly is the kingdom of heaven? Is it the reign of God? Is it something now? Is it something in the future? The answer is yes. It's both. It's all of the above. It's here, but not quite yet. It's here in the form Jesus brought his kingdom when he came to earth, but it's not complete until he returns again. It's something that we look forward to as well. We experience it now in the person of Christ, but we look forward to it as well. You think about Paul's story. It's about doing kingdom work. That's part of it. You know, God told Paul, my power shows up best in weak people. God was looking for empty vessels, not somebody who was, you know, strong in the physical sense or even the mental sense. 
But Paul, he's a perfect example of this. Before he was saved, Paul was a spiritual giant of his day. I mean, he, he was a leader in the Pharisees. I mean, he was, he was one, he was a hero for them. I mean, he was like their wide earth. He was known for keeping Christians under control, for persecuting them and keeping them away. He kept law and order. If there was such a thing as religious wealth, this guy had it. I mean, he had all that he thought he needed. And he had earned what he thought he needed to earn. I mean, he was a spiritual billionaire. And he knew it. Look at Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Although I once also had confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So Paul was determined to keep the Jewish nation pure, and that meant keeping Christians out. He, he was, in terms of human perspective, he was righteous. But all of this changed when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Everything changed. He started out to persecute Christians, but he ended up meeting Jesus face to face, and it changed him forever. Acts 9, 4 through 6, falling to the ground, total humility before God, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to, to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said. I mean, that's a legitimate question. Are you, are you Lord? <laughs> are you him? I am Jesus. The one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you are to do. I'm, I'm, I'm sure when he met Jesus face to face, I'm sure he thought he was a goner. All he had done to persecute his followers, and when he realized, I mean, that's the question, right? Is, okay, is this real? Are you Lord? Because that means I'm wrong and everybody that I've been persecuting is right. And so I'm sure he thought that Jesus was just going to wipe him out right then and there, that he was done. But God had a different plan. Jesus had a different plan for him. He ended up blind temporarily so that he could see, look inside, I believe was one of the reasons. So he, he, he didn't have anywhere else to look but inside and to see his true spiritual condition before God. And, and he didn't like what he saw when he did see inside. He realized who he really, he thought he was great. He thought he was holy. He thought he was righteous. But when he looked within and looked at himself through Jesus' eyes, he realized this isn't good. I'm not good. He didn't like what he saw. But he realized in his own words he was the worst of sinners. Then he got to realize that God had a plan for him. That that was the first step in him experiencing God's plan. Like all of us who have been saved, when Paul gave up on himself, God stepped in. All of us. We have to get to that point to where we get up, give up on ourselves. I can't do it on my own. I am poor in spirit. The very definition of the word. And at that moment, God steps in. And then we experience the, the, the relationship with God through Christ, but we experience the kingdom of God. We experience what he's talking about here. You compare Paul to the rich man, and Paul's ahead by a mile when the story's done. Saul becomes Paul. God changes him, changes his name to reflect that. He didn't make excuses. 
He didn't try to justify himself, but I've done all these, I've kept all these laws. No, he just begged for mercy. That's all he could do, and God gave it to him. He showed him mercy. He surrendered to God, and his life was never the same. Jesus should have finished him, but instead, instead of sending him to hell, he sent him to the Gentiles. And we have much of the New Testament written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing, the transformation that takes place. Paul never took a course on missions. He never sat in on a committee meeting. He never read a book on church growth. He was just inspired by Jesus, so he set the world on fire for Christ. That's all. He surrendered to the Lord. God changed him and used him to set the world on fire. The kingdom of heaven is, strangely enough, where the poor in spirit are, according to Jesus. The kingdom is seen in those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's seen in acts of mercy. It's seen in those who make peace. It's seen in those who are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And who do we know that's done all of those things perfectly? If you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is, the kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is. So the kingdom of heaven, yeah, it's coming. He's coming back. But the kingdom of heaven is also in every follower of Christ. The presence of Jesus Christ. It's hard to believe God wants rejects for his family. But I'm thankful for that. How about you? Because I'm a reject, just like everybody else. The difference is, at the age of seven, with what understanding I had, I realized I was, I was spiritually poor and needed salvation. So wherever you are, that's the first step. And in and, and, and this first beatitude, in giving this simple truth, Jesus has shown us how to be saved. Step number one, realize you can't do it on your own, that you are spiritually bankrupt in sin with no way out without Jesus and his death and his resurrection. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit because they will be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. They realize their need for Christ. They turn to him, beg for mercy, and they receive it. But cursed are the proud because they'll be condemned. Now, Annie's going to help me this morning with this. So, Annie, you come on up. I've got your seat right here. She's going to help me kind of drive this point home, hopefully. Can you get up? You need some help? Now you got it, don't you, baby? All right. Here's what I want you to do, all right? You've had a lot of spelling tests this year, haven't you? You love them too, don't you? <laughs> now, she agreed to do this. I'm not putting her on the spot. I mean, I am a little bit, but she's okay with it. Um, here's what I want you to do. Here's your pencil. I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to try to spell it, all right? You ready? Okay catastrophe. I couldn't spell this on my own either. There's, okay, just give it a try. Catastrophe. Well, it's hard, yeah, but, you know, just try. Catastrophe. Okay, all right. I got a little bit of bad news. That's not quite right, all right? Like I said, though, I'm not a good speller. I couldn't have done it on my own. It's okay. So here's what I want you to do, all right? I want you to erase it. You having trouble? What's wrong? There's no eraser. Say it loud. Say it loud. There's no eraser. Okay, so there's no eraser, but in order to fix that, you've got to erase it, right? So what do you need? All right. Well, just so happens, I have a pencil with a nice, big, beautiful eraser on it. Would you like to use it? All right. Can you ask nicely? It's kind of mean, isn't it? She's okay with it, though. 
absolutely, 100%, you may use my eraser. Now try it. All right, now, here's what's going to happen. You can't spell this on your own, right? But I know how to spell it. You know why? Because I've got it written right here. All right, so would you like for me to, to call out the, word, the letters and help you spell it? All right, here goes. You ready? All right, C A T A S T R. Yeah, I hear y'all spelling it with me. O P H E. Good job, sweetheart. All right, baby, you can go sit down. Thank you so much. Now, what's... She's a brave soul, isn't she? They all volunteer for this, y'all. I don't force them to do that. They, They love it. So what's the point there? On her own, she could not spell the word, and she made a mistake, right? And when she tried to erase it on her own, she fell short because she didn't have what it took. She didn't have the eraser. All of us are like that. On our own... This is us. <laughs> Our sin is represented by the misspelled word. We've, boy, we, we've not only misspelled one, we've misspelled a lot. And if we're going to be saved, we've got to have somebody else. We've got to have a different eraser. And Jesus gives us the eraser. He provides for us a way to be saved. But what was the key? And this is where I, this, I made her do something that, you know, was probably a little bit uncomfortable. I made her ask me for that eraser, right? I mean, Jesus has what we need, but we've got to recognize first our need for what he has and what he offers. He doesn't force it on us. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They recognize their need for Jesus. But the beauty is, one of the reasons we're blessed is because the minute we go and ask him for forgiveness... He gives us his eraser just as freely as I gave this to my daughter. He gives it to us. He provides forgiveness of sin. You know, there are a lot of us here today at home who have experienced that, who, who have asked God for forgiveness and have experienced the blessing of knowing him, but there are some maybe here, maybe at home that haven't. And so my question are, for you is, are you blessed today? Not materially, not do you feel good, not are you happy, not are you comfortable, But are you blessed? Do you know Jesus? Have you recognized your spiritual bankruptcy before him and asked him to come into your life and save you? You We're going to go through the rest of the Beatitudes and we're going to see what God expects from us as followers of Christ, but it starts right here. Do you know your Savior? Blessed are the poor in spirit because they see their sin. They know their need for salvation. So have you recognized your need this morning? Let's just go before the Lord in prayer and I'm going to lead you through this time of commitment. You know, if you are here at home and, and you, you recognize your spiritual poverty and you know you need Jesus, maybe this is the realization you've come to this morning. All you have to do right where you are, here at home, somewhere else, is just call out to God and do what we've talked about. Lord, I realize my spiritual poverty. I know I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness and I can't forgive myself. I can't do it on my own. I can't do enough good things. But I know that if I call out to you, if I beg for mercy, you will show it to me. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. 
I believe you died on the cross so that those sins could be forgiven. I believe you are the one and only Savior. Forgive me and take over. My life is now yours. For the rest of us, let's just spend the next few moments allowing God maybe to give us a new appreciation for what he's done for us. Father, we know that none of us are worthy. That none of us could, that we couldn't do anything ever to earn the merciful gift that you've given us. Jesus, you lived a sinless life. You died on the cross. Took on our sin. Paid the price, the penalty for our sin. And now, through your death and then your resurrection, you've defeated death. You offer us the gift of eternal life. But Father, we know we have to recognize our need and turn to you and beg for mercy. For those of us who know you, we thank you for that mercy. We can never repay you. We can do enough good things to be saved. We can't do enough good to repay you, but we can submit to you every day. We can seek your will and we can obey you. We can study your word and obey what it says. We can live for you. We can become what you are describing in these few short verses. And as we walk through these Beatitudes together, I pray that our desire would be to be as you are, to become what you want us to be, that you would use your word through your Holy Spirit to mold us into what you want us to be. Thank you for continuing to work on us and for never giving up. In Jesus' name, amen.